Time for the tactics meeting. Episode 21, Safety Officer. I'm your host, Dan Smiley, and here on the tactics meeting, we talk to subject matter experts about response tactics and technology. We'll begin this week's episode with a safety minute, and to help us, we have Amy Does from iWorkWise. Hi, Amy, and welcome to the program. Hi, Dan. Thank you. The topic for today is IDLH atmospheres. Amy, what do employees need to know? First thing is that IDLH stands for immediately dangerous to life and health. It's not a one breath in your dead level, but it has a little bit of a slap factor where you would have a hard time self-rescuing after 30 minutes of exposure. The, the biggest thing, the most important thing to know about IDLH is it dictates respiratory protection. Once you cross that line, no matter what state you're in or federally, anywhere in the United States, you're in supplied air or self-contained breathing apparatus, SCBA. So um, over any chemicals, IDLH amount that's, that's set that you're in supplied air. Amy, how do we find what a chemical's IDLH is? Those levels are set by NIOSH. Um, the best way is to look online these days and, and uh, use a search engine. It's also on SDSs. Uh, it, if you have a current SDS, you should have the current IDLH information there. Again, it's a national number. It's not going to vary by state like some other exposure numbers. Um, one other thing to think about, Dan, is as always, when you're working in a hazardous environment, uh, continuous air monitoring is a must. You should know what levels you're working in. Great. Thank you, Amy. Thanks for helping to keep us safe. Thanks, Dan. So having helped us with our safety minute, Amy's going to help me dig into the role of the safety officer. It's going to be an amazing episode. So here we go. Amy does. Welcome to the program. Hey, Dan. Nice to be with you again. Hey, today we're going to talk about the role of the safety officer. And this is a topic I've really been focused on over the, the last few months. I've found it a, a little difficult to find the information I need on what the training requirements are, what the certification requirements are, if, if any, uh, who can fill this role of safety officer. So I'm super excited that you're here on the program today to help uh, unlock some of this information. You bet. And, you know, we've talked about it over the years, and I think this is a great conversation to have, kind of an evolution of both of us spending, you know, a professional lifetime in the industry um, and and involved in response. So this is, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I love the stuff where we dig in. Well, I am focused on this from the perspective of being an oil spill response incident commander, and I'm activated and uh, end up on, on site. And until I have a safety officer assigned, I'm the safety officer and I'm, I'm looking around, I've got some contracts with people, but it's more and more difficult to find people who are qualified to, to do this job. And the thing that I keep running into is kind of a, kind of a fake safety thing where there's a safety officer who's running around telling people to, you know, put on a hard hat or wear safety glasses, but they're unable to do hazard identification or hazard evaluation or, or, you know, prioritization or hazard control. Uh, I think you've experienced some of the same frustrations. Oh, what I tell my people all the time is, you know, a lot of good safety glasses will do you if you get blown up. So you've got to find a way to prioritize in this whole thing. And, you know, safety, I've seen it happen so many times where it's, it's, it's both kind of an art and a science. And there's a lot to know to avoid these pitfalls and help other people to not get killed at work. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it takes, it takes some of that experience and knowledge. And when we see, you know, a safety officer, besides the incident commander, is the only 
real person in the ICS system that's called out specifically that has specific uh, requirements of them or duties in a response in a response. I mean, obviously you're going to have the use the incident command system, but they're, they they call it specifically um, some things about a safety officer, and, and they don't necessarily about all the other positions. And I, I find that kind of telling. There's an importance here, and uh, you know, as response professionals, we we don't want to uh, you know miss the forest for the trees, right? Well, that's exactly it. So in in the Haswopper standard, OSHA specifically calls out for a safety officer. They don't call out for a public information officer, liaison officer, operations section chief. They call for an incident commander and a safety officer. So if you don't have a safety officer on site, you're in essence violating federal law. Yeah, I mean, the regulation says the individual in charge of the ICS shall designate a safety officer. Right. Shall. Shall designate a safety officer. It's not optional. No. And when we look at what their responsibilities and authority are, I I don't think it was meant uh, to be just fill the position and check some boxes. Well, that's the thing. So, so. In oil spill response, we focus on the hazards of petroleum products. And, you know, they're pretty, you know, straightforward as to uh, flammability and toxicity. But when we're responding to an incident that's taken place on a ship, oil is not the only problem. There, There can be chlorine. I mean, there could be refrigerated cargo holds, which means there's either freon or ammonia. There can be uh, compressed oxygen. There can be acetylene. There's paints. There's thinners. There's, I mean, the list just goes on and on. I might as well just start reading page by page through the NIOSH pocket guide. Yeah, that's a working operation of the ship. And then there's all the weird stuff that could be cargo. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, right. So back in the day when I sailed for Western Pioneer, I mean, I had had a Haswopper class, but I really didn't know this this stuff. And when I think of the cargo that I had in some of the cargo holds, including compressed gas cylinders, I'm embarrassed that I didn't ventilate those hatches and do some air monitoring prior to sending crews down. But I was young and what and uh, I won't get so far as to say uh, stupid, but certainly ignorant. Yeah, I I felt the same way before, too. I mean, you don't know what you don't know. And that that youth and inexperience, I think, is the key thing. Um, You know, you just you don't have the the training, knowledge and experience to evaluate the hazards properly. And, you know, we all kind of grew up saying, you know, we use barbecues, so we kind of realize what propane, you know, does. But, you know, when when a house got leveled in my neighborhood by a barbecue cylinder and there's nothing left uh, except the chimney, I thought, huh, that's a lot of energy out of that one little five-gallon unit, you know. And I, I've been working in hazmat my whole life. I mean, obviously, I've seen blevies and, you know, propane, whatever, have been trained uh, as much as anybody can be, I think, but, um, you know, you don't, you don't get it without some depth, you know, and, and if, if you're the safety officer, you're supposed to, um, at the, at that operation, that emergency response operation, and it's spelled out in, in federal law, you have specific responsibility, identify identify and evaluate hazards and to provide direction with respect to the safety of operations for the emergency at hand. So, you know, you might be able to identify if you're an inexperienced person, just kind of getting thrown in, you kind of identify, oh, they might have this, they might have refrigerants or something, but to truly evaluate the hazards, given the damage um, during maybe fire conditions, uh, flooding conditions, right? Um, to evaluate those hazards properly to ensure that that response is safe, um, it's a little more than checking boxes. You got to understand. So are there certification requirements that you're aware of for safety officers? I mean, OSHA says you're, 
you will assign a safety or shall assign a safety officer, but does it go any farther into telling you what requirements a person needs to have, what training they need to have in order to fill that role? No, let me tell you, I'll tell you what the sketchy information is, right? So not only us, but anyone who might be listening can kind of, you know, weigh it for themselves. So um, there's no real definition of a safety officer. There's, there's the regular requirements for awareness level training, for operations level training, um, or defensive or technician level training, offensive, right? And through the incident commander. But there isn't anything specifically called out for a safety officer. So when we kind of go back to the beginning of the Haswapper standard, there is a definition for site safety and health supervisor or official. And that doesn't, that's not a safety officer, right? I mean, these regs are literal and, and the Haswapper reg uh, covers in the, in the paragraphs up till Q hazardous waste sites, right? And we have paragraph Q that covers emergency response. So, um, you know, it, the site safety and health supervisor kind of is referred to in the hazardous waste part, but this is all we have, right? This is the only thing that kind of mentions it. So what the definition is with, with that caveat is it's the person who's responsible to the employer and has the authority and knowledge necessary to implement the site safety and health plan and verify compliance with applicable safety and health requirements. Clearly in an emergency, as the requirements are one thing, but the, the authority and knowledge necessary, right? And if we go back to the, the two paragraphs in the standard that talk about safety officer, um, we're talking about, uh, I think, kind of a performance standard where does that safety officer, can they identify and evaluate those hazards? Do they have the knowledge and expertise? Um, to provide direction, right? And the hazards like you talked about could be myriad. It's not necessarily just diesel in the water, right? There could be a lot of other things. Things. Um, so you show up and you think, oh, I have a shipboard uh, spill or I have a shipboard fire and, um, you know, holy smokes, you get, you're gonna have to keep your res responders safe um, from all the things that might be on there. It's not yeah. just, you know, boots and rain gear. Yeah, I had a I had an Osro uh, not that long ago, uh, an oil spill response organization, uh, tell me that they couldn't help uh, with a, a safety officer or provide anybody in safety because they we, they don't do hazmat. You know, and they're so they're focused on this idea that they're there to to skim oil off the water or clean clean oil off the water, and that that's the only hazard. But that's never the only hazards when they told me well we don't do hazbats like well then go home because you're not going to stay here yeah <laughs> you, you know and it's it's a hole in the industry which is i think you know why we talked about talking about this and and involving other professionals and you know getting some thinking caps on across uh across the board because you know it doesn't seem like a a great cadre of uh trained safety officers who are more than qualified you know so we talked Dan, let's let's backtrack a little bit we talked a little bit about the one paragraph you know the person the safety officer is someone who is knowledgeable in the operations um so they have to be involved with the incident commander know what's going on and what's planned and they have to identify and evaluate hazards and provide direction the other paragraph the only other thing we really have to go on is the part about their authority. And it's it says when activities are judged by the officer, by the safety officer to involve imminent danger, they shall have the authority to alter, suspend, or terminate those activities. The safety officer shall immediately inform the individual in charge of the ICS. It's a long way of saying incident commander, isn't it? But they're, they're supposed to immediately inform the incident commander of any actions needed. So, you know, in a way they can override the incident commander. And one thing I noticed on the, on the spills and drills and, and things I've attended is very rarely does a safety officer have the chutzpah or the authority or the, 
organizational, you know, they're not part of the organization where they're really going to tell the incident commander no, you know, and maybe that isn't needed all the time, but uh, often I see a, a big emphasis on, on little things because maybe they don't, they don't know what they need to know about the big things, right? And again, the safety classes don't do you much good if you're all blown up. Right. So the one set of, uh, not really regs, but uh, guidance that I found is the National Fire Protection Association's standards. And there's a number of safety officer manuals that have put out. I bought a couple uh, as we were, as I was questing through this, I've got David W. Dodson's Fire Department Incident Safety Officer Revised Third Edition in my hand, and it's and it's pretty good, uh, but it still doesn't provide you any idea of of the of a, a training standard other than meeting these NFPA things. It doesn't say that you know you need to be a certified safety professional or that you have to be a 24-hour Hazwopper trained. It's pretty loosey-goosey on the requirement side. So in that regard, it's telling me that I can assign anybody, and of course that's not going to work. Yeah, and I, I've also seen that at fire department levels. I've got some experience and certainly a lot of colleagues in the in the firefighting profession. And, um, you know, again, we don't see a level of training and knowledge necessarily in the safety officers being assigned at scenes. You know, I think, uh, I think luck, you know, get away with a lot of stuff based on luck um, from what I've seen. It's not really based on knowledge or a, a, a very strong and uh, assessment of, of the hazards, you know, I first identification of the hazards properly, uh, you know, making that a priority. I mean, what the heck is on the ship? Where is it located, right? I would think that if if I was an incident commander, I'd want my safety officer. I mean, that's obviously what they should be spending time on. What I see sometimes on spills is they're spending time developing their, their, their briefing, you know, to the incident team or response team before they go in about what they could trip over or if they get a bee sting or, you know, some of that, I mean, those are technically are all hazards, but, but again, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, me, Dan, I'm, I'm always uh, completely redundant in the fact that we say death first, you know, what's going to kill people and oxygen displacement. You talked about Freon, if Freon's involved in a fire, we're talking about phosgene gas, um, ammonia, any compressed gas, you know, pressure vessels on a, uh, uh, vessel can blevy, right? So there's that where the relief valves discharge to. Often they're plumbed out it, for all toxic materials. They're plumbed outside the space and somewhere up the gantry or a mast or something. Are those going to spray on firefighters on the deck? I mean, there is a lot of things that have to be um, analyzed and processed in a stressful situation by by the person who's who's saying, wait a second, you know, this response action we're taking that we think is simple, maybe isn't quite quite as simple. And the other thing, you know, you could you could just say, you can just run to the conservative, right? You can say, oh, well, we're barely going to respond to anything because we just can't be sure. Well, that results in a greater loss to the company and the community and actually more endangerment by letting an incident go on and on and on because you just simply don't have the knowledge to respond intelligently. So, you know, there's kind of penalties on both sides, right? You don't know enough, you can get people killed and you don't know enough and you end up, your response isn't, I mean, it's a not, it's a no response or, a, you know, you're doing a lot more damage. Um, by by taking that ultra conservative thing, so you know, I think clearly my approach is always that competence is the best solution um, instead of the ultra conservative do nothing strategy or the run into everything because we're going to take care of it strategy. What do you right. think? We've seen the run into everything strategy, oh, yeah. right? Well, there was a. There was the uh, ammonia r release up in Dutch Harbor 
where they decided to send an entry team in 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 uh, firefighting bunker gear and they immediately started experiencing uh, chemical burns the ammonia concentrations were well up over the 5,000 parts per million that would begin to have corrosive effects so they came running back out of the ship and instead of uh, doing something else they just sent the backup team in to do it again right yeah i mean oh it so. shows a lack of knowledge and there's a good instance where you'd have a strong safety officer be go no we're not we're not doing that yeah i mean and it's it's really about hazard and risk assessment right which you could relabel as a cost benefit analysis what is it that we are going to gain by sending our team in there and if you're you know, if your your fire is in the middle of, of nowhere and you can stand back and let it burn out, well, that that might be a val- a valid choice. If your if your situation is right in the middle of a populated area, and uh, life safety of civilians is an issue, then your objectives change and safety officers need to be able to evaluate these hazards with with these priorities in in mind and. I don't always feel like people who have the the knowledge to conduct those hazard assessments are available to me. Oh, and and you know, the longer I'm in this, I, I you know, if I'm showing up to an incident, my I always am going to be in the default no go position, right? So if if you come at an incident that way, I mean, I'm not planning on no going, but I'm starting that way. Instead of starting as get suited up, we're going to go do something. I, in my mind, um, this is, this is an evolution over the over the years, right? As I start out with, no, we're not we're not going. Um, we're going to make sure people are safe where they're assembled. We're going to make sure the peri- perimeters are right. We're going to make sure community is protected and other people are protected. And then we're like, what can we do, right? What can we do? And then you're, you're like, could we do this safely? Yeah, I think we can do that safely because we don't have, you know, there's no circumstance here where I'm going to get people killed. I can, we can get in there. Can we do, what else can we do safely? Right? What else can we do safely? And I think that can be, I mean, that process could take five minutes, right? So you're taking care of your, your community or whatever and you're you're looking at the hazards and you're saying what is it that we could do with a with a pretty much a guarantee of safety right and if you're good with hazards i mean people who work around ammonia you brought up ammonia so it's corrosive gas pungent suffocating odor right it's it's not sneaky at all i love ammonia because you know the stronger it smells the stronger it is and you won't willingly stay in a situation that'll kill you but you have it's a compressed gas right so you have blevy hazards and and other things like that but you know when you're do, the people who work around ammonia and understand it all the time they can they could go and I'm not advocating this. Okay. <laughs> okay. Don't do this at home, anybody. <laughs> Noted. I, I've worked with people who are amazing and they're experts in their field. They've worked with refrigeration systems or ammonia their whole life, you know, and they can approach a raging leak, you know, uh, from the upwind, right? And walk up to it and never smell ammonia, right? No respiratory equipment, no anything, right? They're not exposed because they understand how it behaves, right? They understand the hazards of that particular leak and they understand how it behaves. So I think, you know, identifying the hazards is, is really key and the things that kill people is, is something that you, you do first. You, you do everything that'll kill people and I think you talk about it in a separate category, right? And that's what you worry about first. And obviously, you know, when you see the high flyer explosions in the 40s, right? Um, that What's that other vessel in Texas? City, Texas, right? Oh, the Grand Camp. Yeah, the Grand Camp and the high flyer, right? Ammonium nitrate explosions or whatever. They didn't clear the docks. They didn't protect the community. And, you know, 500 people plus were killed, right? So what do you take? Death first, right? So is there something that could explode, right? And, and then... You know what? What else from there? Air hazards. They, those reach out certainly further than contact hazards, right? So, 
um, we're dealing with vapor and gas spread. So explosions and blevies, ruptures, um, that kind of thing. You know, I, I think that safety officers should be trained to kind of go in and that and you know, it isn't random and you shouldn't be thinking about things as all things being equal. This is like you talked about hazard and risk, right? This is risk-based evaluation where we're looking at things and, and, you know, making sure we take care of the big stuff first, you know, and have a, have a hundred percent handle on the big stuff. Cause we don't want, it's our job, make sure our responders don't die. Right. No one in the community, and, and other people. And then from there, they don't die and then they don't get injured, right? There's other priorities, but I don't want them killed on my watch, right? So I'm going to look at death first. I'm going to look at the, the stuff that could blow up. I'm going to look at the stuff that could spread. Um, so first gases and vapors um, and then liquids, that clearly and oil spills, right? We have spread there. Um, but we want to look at stuff that beyond contact and then obviously contact. And then you have all the regular site hazards. We don't want people falling off of towers or they're doing stuff when they, when, you know, the, the, the regular safety stuff, but the regular safety stuff is not what I would look at first. You know, when coming to an incident, when I look at these two paragraphs, identify and evaluate hazards um, it's, you know, first with respect to the emergency. So anyway, you can see I get fired up, Dan. Sorry, I'm going off, but um, I love this stuff. Oh, no need to apologize. You know, I, that uh, last ship fire, uh, we knew there the it was a refrigerated vessel and that it used ammonia as a refrigerator, a refrigerant. But initially, we were told that all the ammonia had been pulled off, and only came to light later that what they meant was pulled back into the high pressure receiver. So getting accurate information when you're showing up to these events can also be really hard. And then then they had a, a, a bunch of chlorine on board. And yeah, we thought about the re release hazards of, of chlorine by itself or the blevy hazards because it was stored in, in uh, cylinders uh, as a liquid under pressure. But chlorine and ammonia are, are, are not friendly together. Oh my uh, gosh! Nitrogen uh, trichloride gas. Nitrogen trichloride gas. Toxic and out. toxic and flammable. Yeah, and, and ammonia cartridges don't help. No, and <laughs> right, right. Good, right? good so point. Well, that's a great point. The combination changes everything, doesn't it? It's really and, something. And it's not like there's an NFPA diamond on the side of the ship, right? So no. Right. So. You know, getting getting in there and doing that hazard evaluation is is really critical. So, who is qualified, and what what should we use as a qualification standard? I um, mean, I'm honestly asking. I mean, what who is qualified to do this? Do we have to do the training ourselves in house? Do we say that a 24 hour hazwopper a technician certificate is required? I, I went back and I looked at the the uh, safety officer training uh, syllabus f for ICS that um, FEMA uses, and for them, it's really about the planning cycle. You know, it's 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 the attending the meetings and developing the health and safety plan and completing the ICS. 215 safety evaluation to go with each of the ICS 204 task assignments, but it it doesn't provide a, like a prerequisite requirement to say, hey, before you come in and take this course to be the incident safety officer and function as part of the uh, command staff working through the planning cycle, you already have to be you know, Haswopper trained, certified safety professional trained, or 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 uh, NFPA trained, or or whatever. So again, there's a kind of a big hole. Yeah, I can go into a tabletop exercise, or go into the command post, and I can develop a site safety plan, and I can uh, attend the the meetings, and I can go to the tactics meeting, and I can create a a two fifteen A. But but it seems to me that. Uh, that's one skill set and that 
I might need an assistant safety officer for hazmat, an assistant safety officer for decon. And I'm sure that in in the broader hazmat world, those things are being addressed. But I don't know that we do a good job of that in the oil spill world. You know, I, I see sometimes the assignment of the safety, you know, it goes to somebody who's a little bit annoying and doesn't mind nagging people, right? And it it, it really, uh, in some operations I've seen, and, and I, probably it was this way when I was younger and didn't know better too, but, it, it, you know, it's developed a like PPE monitor. And it, this is, that's not it, you know? I think this job is... Uh, is so much bigger than that. I think it's more of a specialist of what, what you're going to run into and how to use tools like the, you know, like the ERG, the ERG, the North American emergency response guide is really only for transportation incidents, but it's a guide, right? It's a guide. It talks about hazards of particular, I think it does a pretty good job hazards of particular containers or, or whatever. If, if you have nothing else, you, you have, something there to start with right and then you need the ex the intelligence and expertise to be able to apply it to your situation although it might not apply directly you know how can i use that information i mean there may all there may be things you you uh you don't know you're going to run into right for people who apply to ship or people who fulfill the role of safety officer on ships it, there is some commonality i mean you talked about it refrigerants right uh different fuels uh chlorine uh calcium hypochlorite you know powdered chlorine that mixes uh how those things mix uh you know definitely even just you know fully understanding liquefied compressed gases right or acetylene and how those cylinders fail when they fail um what to expect you know, um, they're like great big Roman candles and their fusible uh, de device melts at 212, right? So if you have a deck heating up under an acetylene cylinder, that thing's going to open and it's going to vent its contents, which include acetone in addition to acetylene. I mean, I, I want my safety officer knowing this stuff. So when you have somebody showing up who says we don't do hazmat, and I would have the same reaction you would be as, well, I don't need you, right? I, I, I think my guys try to not to trip over stuff, right? Like that, I think we got that. We've had that through the rest of our training. It's not really a, even worthy of the safety briefing in some ways. Um, but Oh, God, don't even get me started on this. Yeah, don't get me started on the safety briefing. Oh, come on. Let's do it. I mean... I mean, like you know, they're going through this this checklist. It's everybody's of, favorite spot part, right, of the whole thing. And of course, the safety the briefing. the less you know, the longer the safety briefing takes because they they're going through this thing. It's like you know, slips, trips, and falls. Oh, wear a hard hat. Be careful of animal and bites. And overhead. I love the hard hat one. I Everybody's know. wearing these hard hats, and there's abs there's nothing but seagulls flying, right? So for some reason we need the protection from what might happen from a seagull, but for, I mean, keep going, Dan, oh. I, I, I'm with you. I, I mean, it, it can take a half an hour to go through this thing and it never really uh, addresses uh, anything at all. So it's, it's, um, you know, it's interesting that I think, I think the Washington state department of ecology recognizes this because they have a requirement for credit for, for their uh, drills program, uh, for them to witness a, a successful safety brief because they've seen so many horrible ones. And while I'm ranting on about that, the so often there's this disconnect between the command post safety officer and the safety plan, and they write it, they get it approved, but it never makes it out into the field. No one ever sees the darn thing, right? So they're always yeah. just constantly working off their own checklists, which is not the point yeah it's um it's it's a good example of overdue with checklists you know we do a lot of audits you know of compliance for people um and auditing drills and you know just auditing in general and 
people often want a checklist like, oh, I don't I don't know what I need to. I need this checklist. But, you know, there's a whole world of what isn't on there. And then you have a hyper focus on what is on there and you're not looking again at the forest for the trees. Right. Well, I mean, people have to recognize that a checklist are there to remind you to do something that you already know how to do. They help. They're there to help you manage complexity, but they're not there to teach you how to do something. No. You know, so, you know, and and even, you know, seasoned professionals, experts use checklists to remind them of things, you know, like like pilots. So I'm in favor of checklists, but they're there as a, a job aid to complete a task that you already know how to do you can't start with the checklist no checklist isn't it's it's really the commonly forgotten things you don't need to write down you know uh pull the covers back put my feet on the floor to get out of bed right you don't need to write that stuff down but i might have to say you know take take your vitamins or um you don't have to remember you don't have to write down drink your coffee because you're totally motivated to do that you're not going to miss that step right so checklists like like you said i'm, I'm a super fan of them atul gawandi's book the checklist manifesto uh how boeing uses checklists but but that's exactly what they are they're just they're something to jog your mental processes so you don't forget something and you're managing complexity and you're managing stress. So checklists are an amazing, wonderful tool for a safety officer and a responder, um, incident commander, right? But they don't uh, substitute for training and knowledge and depth in, in what it is you're, you're doing. Well, you had also mentioned something um, about authority, and I think there's a line in the in the Haswopper standard that that talks about uh, authority. You know, this this person needs to be able to to break in on a conversation with the incident commander or a unified command and and get their point across. And I've thought about this a lot, and it almost seems like one of the training requirements to get to safety officer would be to become a qualified incident commander first and then go to safety officer. I mean, you've got to really understand how to manage the incident, and only then can you step back and look at the safety of the incident. So I'm kind of leaning towards the idea that, hey, to be my safety officer, you, you have to be qualified to be an incident commander. Yeah, I, th I think that's interesting for sure. And I'll, I'll I'll think about that more. I I I'd have to agree with you for now. And the... You know, there's also the, the training role of specialist, right? But you never really see the specialist used um, that much or, or brought in for a particular material. Um, but, you know, let's say your safety officer, you know, when do they bring in a specialist for something would be another, you know, um, topic. If there, you talked about assistant safety officers, right? You might have a specialist who's an assistant safety officer who's, who's a, a specialist on that particular material, depending on the hazmat. So that there's some interesting stuff to explore. You know, it's just um, I think in the meantime, maybe if we could get the safety meetings or briefings to, to not to be real, not a snooze, to be real, that talk about the the things that are specific or uh, specific isn't even the word because yeah, you could trip anywhere, right? Um, and you you could that would be specific to any incident. Right. But, uh, you know, there has to be a risk prioritization, I think, in that. And people aren't going to remember 15 minutes of reading off a checklist on everything that could possibly happen to a human being who's outside and dressed. Right. Uh, there has to I, I think as an industry, we should dial back from that kind of stuff and and, you know, make sure the big stuff is covered and. Uh, for sure with with 100 percent and and uh, talk about things that are unique to that incident yeah like you know my pet peeve of the year for safety has been respiratory protection as as covid turned n95 into uh, a noun that was the the term de jour for 
uh, weeks and months. And as I looked around and watched people trying to implement uh, respiratory protection rules, I realized you know they, they don't even they don't even know what they're wearing. They don't even know what it's for or what the N or the 95 means. So safety officers, in my mind, really have to completely understand the their field, right? Their, their field. Safety. And and I don't know, you know, I just I just don't know that we're accomplishing that all, all the time. And and I'm not not trying to criticize anybody in 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 particular. I think I as an incident commander have not always succeeded in implementing the safety officer role as well as I could. And one of the reasons that I'm discussing it is that, you know, I'm trying to uh, uh, have constant improvement to act on on lessons learned. Yeah. The, the COVID, okay, I can't, I can't help myself, right? But the, <laughs> the, during the COVID thing, you bring up the N95, and we, we know that you know, respirators are rated one of three letters, particulate respirators are one of three letters and um, also three numbers. And the numbers are efficiency, right? So is it black out 95% of the contaminant, letting 5% by? That's a 95, right? Uh, you know, um, 99, does it do 99% or they have hundreds, which is not quite 100, but really. Yeah, 99.97, they say. Yeah, or even more nines in there. And so, you know, the, the number is how much will it filter out? If it filters out 95% of it, you're, you're pretty good. Of course, the longer you're in that environment, the more the 5% could matter. But um, the, the first one is the letters, right? The N, the R, and the P. You know, during that whole time, and I'd have to say I laughed, but it wasn't totally with glee that people didn't understand that you couldn't find an N95 they're selling them for $200 and they're fake and you know they come out with all these other Chinese variations and aren't NIOSH approved right and aren't really great for workplaces but you could buy an R95 you know you could buy that for three dollars and right. you could buy a P95 right and it just makes you laugh because it's still a 95. So it's giving you the 95% particulate efficiency. But we know that N stands for non-oil. The R is oil resistant and the P is oil proof. So it's whether that material will hold up to an oily particle. So if you're not in a machine shop, no one really cares. So they phase out on that part of the training. Um, but basically you're looking for a 95% efficient particulate respirator. And there are so few people across the United States that understood it during COVID. You, you could buy the R's and the P's. I mean, people at hospitals are suffering, right? Because they don't have the equipment, but they have R's and P's. Well, I couldn't, I, I, I guarantee you, if I'd have handed uh, somebody in a hospital, a P100, they'd be like, no, I can't, I, I need an N95. What, Right. P100 means because they don't understand it at all. And then and then I I know for a fact that there were some uh, hospital settings where people were able to get their hands on powered air purifying respirator or PAPR. That's another complaint of mine is that people use the term PAPR and don't even know that it's actually still just an air purifying respirator and they want to wear an N95 under the, under the paper hood. Right. Right. And of course they're spewing whatever they have. I mean, when we're not talking about workplace contaminants, we're talking about biologicals, uh, you know, a powered air purifying respirator, if they have COVID, right. It, it's certainly uh, going out around everyone else. It protects them perfect, you know, well, but it doesn't protect the other people. But, you know, we see people, act, they've gotten smarter. And there's actually some things I'm quite impressed with that people understand about respirators now um, a little bit better. Um, but we're, when we're talking about, a, you know, so often we talk about effectiveness in training, there, there are levels, right? Taking a respirator training, the same training every year, checking that box, check, check, check. It's not the same respirator training that a safety officer should have, right? There's a level where you're administering the program. And OSHA has that in the respiratory protection program, a program administrator. In a way, the safety officer is administering the respirator program as it 
relates to the emergency response scene, right? That's right. Way they really do need to know a heck of a lot more about respirators than a regular person. Not in a way. Let's say unequivocally, they need to know more about respirators than the regular employee, right? And are the safety officers getting that kind of training? I'm not convinced they are. No, I'm not convinced that they are either. Because I talked to to a number of people who were safety officers for various organizations during COVID. And it was clear while talking about this exact, you know, N95 versus R97 uh, discussion that they did not understand it. And so right. if they don't understand it in that context, how can they do emergency response? Right. It's, uh, Oh, and respirators aren't for emergency response anyway. I mean, air purifying respirators aren't for emergency response. No, but you have post-response cleanups and you have other things, right? I mean, I I don't think you want your safety officer to... uh, Anyway, there's a lot to safety, right? It's not just assigning a guy with a checklist and who's had the same training everyone else has. And and like you said, it's not specified what training they get. So... um, you know, we're left with a performance-oriented situation where they need to have the knowledge and authority. So how much knowledge, you know, do they need to have to actually speak with authority and be respected by the incident command, you know, incident commander or the unified command, that's, that structure, um, they really should be a resource and know what they're talking about, about safety. So, you know, if, if you have to know some things about safety to run a regular safety program for a company, uh, no matter how big, then don't you have to know that much more to do it during an emergency response? Well, absolutely. And so many times I've seen company safety officers who were just line employees who happened to get all their preventative maintenance done and hey, they've got a position uh, to promote them into management. You want to be the safety officer. And it just seems to me that we just, when you do something like that, you know, you don't want to spend the money on an industrial hygienist or a certified safety professional. No. That, that even when you're saying that safety is number one, I mean, it clearly isn't. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I know that. I'm looking at developing my own uh, safety officer standard that says you'll you'll be trained for you know A B C D and E in order to be qualified as a safety officer. And I haven't written that yet. I was going to talk to you about that at some point. But you know, starting off with you know you 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 must be incident commander qualified. For OSHA, that means that you are uh, trained at the operations level, that you uh, could understand the incident command system, that you're able to implement the employer's uh, emergency response plan, that you understand the hazards of chemical protective clothing, that you're able to do hazard and risk assessment, you understand how to do decon and how to terminate an incident. So right there, you know, a safety officer should, at as a foundation, should be qualified at, at that level. And then there, there may be uh, some additional things that are um, industry specific. We, we can look at the hazards uh, that we can expect to find on shipboard. Although in some cases, like container ships, who knows what's in those containers? They're often incorrectly placarded or not placarded at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that, but you, again, you can plan on that based on basics response strategy by not getting overexcited about it or underexcited about it. Right. And, and, uh, you know, I think in addition to the incident commander training you're talking about, which I'm all for, by the way, you're talking me into it. Uh, uh, not that you had to, right? But <laughs> right. the more you talk about it, the more I get behind that. But um, I think you also need some training and risk assessment. 
I mean, you're not born with it necessarily. You can say, oh, that burner's hot. If I put my hand there, I'm going to get burned, right? I mean, we all have a little bit of it, but there's actual techniques and there's proportionality and priorities, right? And in a safety, you know, you got to be thinking about the big stuff first. You got to, you're right, make sure no one's dead and make sure no one has anything amputated. Make sure they're not going to be burned, right? And and then you work toward whether they're going to trip. And granted, you could trip and hit your head on a table and die or whatever, but what is unique to the incident and a focus on that, you know, bringing people real information that they can protect themselves with. You know, I'd almost like to see those safety briefings at the end, um, be something more like, look, and we have all the usual thing, usual hazards of working outside, right? Um, and that just includes your bee sting, snake bites. All you know, we don't have to talk about them individually. They're not proportionally more there at that scene. I mean, if I was at a snake zoo, right, I would be talking about snakes, right? But if I'm not at a snake zoo, I can just say, look, we've got all our normal hazards of the, our normal stuff. If you're working at height, you got to, you know, keep your wits about just slow down a little bit, really think it through. Because not only do we have that stuff, but, you know, we have an emergency, which makes it more stressful. But you know, there should be no time spent on that crap. I mean, honestly, it, that, that should just be part of everyone, every responder's basic training. And it, it, those things don't need a mention. What needs to be talked about is the stuff you're running into that's unique to that incident. Not a not a cover your CYA um, is how I should say it. Not a CYA of oh the insurance company yeah we mentioned that in the safety briefing. Well everyone was asleep by then, so you know it's it, one of the tenets of training is not just did you cover it but did people receive it? Was it understood that training is a two way street right? It's not a one way. I told them, so I think we need to get out of that CYA on these things. And uh, when we're talking to people in the response structure, give them that basic level of training. And then when we get to the incident, talk about things that are about the incident. What do you think uh, about that, Dan? I, I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. And I, I think that's why I think that's why we're having this conversation. You know, I just feel like um, people say, well, to be a good safety officer, you, all you need is, you know, some some good common sense and you know i would argue and i've heard i know you've heard me say it before that in the hazmat world in the firefighting world in the oil spill response world there's no such thing as common sense it's information that you have learned you think the people who were who were grinding out tunnels breathing silica dust and and dying of lung disease, dying of silicosis. Do you think they did that on purpose? Do you think that it was common sense that that's what's going to happen, that it was common sense that asbestos caused lung disease or that that, uh, mercury uh, used by hatters caused uh, insanity? People wouldn't do it on purpose if they knew, but we only know because people died and that knowledge became available to us. Common sense is something we learned far enough back in our life. You mentioned the stove being hot. At some point, your mom told you, hey, don't touch the stove. It's hot. And you're like, okay, the stove's hot. You didn't know. You had no earthly clue until one day you put your hand on the stove. You're like, ah! damn thing's hot. And then you learned something that day and that knowledge was so ingrained that we call that common sense. You know that information, but humans aren't like bees, you know, born knowing how to make a hive or, or ants or something. We have to learn all the only things that we know how to do when we're born is breathe and eat and poop. And that's it. (laughs) You know, and I think, Here's the thing with with safety is you can't have everything happen to you. Or you'd be dead already, right? You you've got to be the wisdom is is being able to understand what's happened to other people and be able to not do that, right? So we're kind of we're fighting human tendencies a little bit, right? Because we we have to learn from other people's mistakes, and in order to learn from other people's mistakes, we have to know about them. 
we have to be trained in that. We have to uh, know what the hazard is to control the, the approach for the organization. So there's some art and science in the whole, in the safety world. And there's some wisdom where you don't have to uh, experience every horrible death everyone else has, right? You can actually, uh, you know, avoid those without doing it yourself. So. Well, well that's, ex that's exactly, exactly yeah. right. You know, we have to be looking at, uh, at the accidents that are taking place, looking at the OSHA bulletins and keeping our knowledge up to, to date. There was that accident at a, a poultry farm. Was that Georgia last year or early this year? It was a, a nitrogen release. Yeah. And, you know, nitrogen is, you know, is non-toxic. Hell, we're, I'm breathing it right now. 78% of the air we breathe is, is nitrogen. It's non-flammable. Uh, otherwise the whole planet would be on fire right now. Um, it's not flammable. It's non-toxic, but yet five people died at this release and another, you know, eight or 10 people, or I don't remember the exact number went to the emergency room because it's, it's heavier than air. It displaces oxygen. Certainly as when it, it's cold. Yeah. Yeah. When it's cold and certainly once it warms up and, disperses within the rest of the air and the atmosphere it's it's no big deal but initially in high concentrations when it's cold when it's when it's near the ground uh, it acts as a common asphyxiant and those people they died of of oxygen deprivation well and you know there's a there's a whole there's a concept in emergency the closer you get to the hazard right the more acute the risks become in a lot of ways. It's not true all the time. Like if it's a contact hazard, you could walk right up to it as long as you don't put your hand in it, right? You, you have an issue, but in, in general, and in a response, you know, we're going, we're trying to approach instead of everyone else running the other way, we protect that community and we protect the people who shouldn't be there and have essentials only. But then our response has to guarantee the safety of the people in our care and on, on, uh, and something like that, you know, you have a big amount of nitrogen at your facility. There should be some definite expertise um, and engineering controls, and you know, that relate to how that nitrogen is handled. Alarms that go off, right, for low oxygen. Um, you know, I don't know the details of that particular incident, but I know the details of you know twenty others, and and uh, we know that the problem is frostbite uh, from the liquid and even the the gas as it's evaporating and and we know that it displaces oxygen right so in the closer you get um, the more likely you are to to risk those things so um you know and our circle doesn't have to be as great as with a toxic chemical perhaps right because like you said it's going to mix with with air and you're, you're going to have enough oxygen in that air once it's mixed so um our safety officer needs to understand the behavior um you know the hazards of the material and the behavior of the material uh to be able to protect the responders and you know hopefully we can start kind of getting them uh the training that they need in order to be a real help to the incident commander I mean, as you know you you do this incident command stuff all the time I mean that's a big responsibility you have people going into dangerous situations that are by nature uncontrolled and developing, and you don't want anyone to die on your watch, right? What's one, what's one of the best things you can do is you can have a strong right hand who knows what the heck they're doing, right? Not somebody, you know, checking all the boxes and it, it's so much a response is kind of revolved around it. I mean, we both know a lot of the stuff recovered does, or a lot of the stuff spilled doesn't get recovered. I mean, you do the very best you can. Um, and in some cases, there's even some dog and pony show aspects, right? But um, not with the safety of your, you know, responders, basically. And and uh, I, I, this this having that strong safety officer with that, with that incredible training protects the liabilities of the company, you know, 
uh, it protects the safety of the responders. And and you can imagine, Dan, you're the IC and something happens on your watch, right? Um, if you did everything you could and you understand it and you have a, a strong safety person, it um, things shouldn't shouldn't happen. But you're going to be a busy person being an incident commander. Um, I don't know that you'd want a box checker next to you. Oh, I I agree, and so that's why I'm that's why I'm looking at it so closely. I could go on for four hours, but I don't I don't think I need to. Right. Yeah. So I you know I think I think we, there's some interesting stuff here, and um, you and I had talked before. Is this is um, an underutilized and capitalized area where uh, there could be some pretty pretty amazing improvement that would improve everyone's life um, uh, and get them out of those, those terrible safety briefings and into something that's, that's really meaningful. But I, I think I, I, I just want to kind of, before we close, Dan, let's talk about, you know, identifying the hazard, right? Understanding those hazards um, or getting the people that do understand them Um you know, other things in the material that could be involved in the incident. What what form is it? Is it a solid, a liquid, or gas? How could it get involved? You know, what are what are some of the hazards of just those states of matter? Reactions you brought up. Um, that's a good thing to spend some time on thinking about early on in an incident, or at, for the safety officer to do. Obviously, downwind offsite concerns. Um, death first, you know, explosives, then fire, and then, uh, uh, you know, toxicity, oxygen deficiency, right? Things that risks that could arise for that. Uh, monitoring, are you using the right monitoring stuff? You could be getting numbers in an incident commander. You need someone who really understands monitoring to be looking after that on the safety officer side. So you don't have to be have all those numbers necessarily in front of you um, and can really be watching your back on that. Um, and, you know, then you just have all the other safety stuff. They understand uh, safety and the depth needed to uh, run a safety program during an emergency response. Yeah. I, in, a, in a number of, I haven't done it for a while, but in, in a number of big tabletop exercises when I was running the sim cell and they, uh, safety officer would ask for current air monitoring readings from the field and I would give some really wacky readings and and the response that I was looking for from the safety officer was hey was that instrument calibrated you know where are you located I mean those readings don't make sense so you just write you know, them down Right, they just write them down, right? You know, I'll, I'll, give them them, down. I'll give them, you know, 255 parts per million carbon monoxide. Well, why is there carbon monoxide? You know, the answer is you're standing by the exhaust of the boat. Get, you know, get into some fresh air. But they're like, yeah, okay, 255 parts per million carbon monoxide. You know, it's, uh, you know, uh, 600 parts per million uh, VOCs, mm -hmm. right? And literally, they I get no no pushback. They just they literally write them down, and I don't know if the incident commander in the drill ever sees them. But They're not thinking. They no. don't know how to think about it. No, but, you know we've run into it. I've told you I've used flashcards before, right? And I'll I'll hold up an air monitor reading in a training class, um, and people don't know. You know you can just you can cover all the concepts when it comes. You know. Uh, comes to get that reading, assimilate what it means, right, and decide what you should do based on it. It's it's flatline. Yeah, you tell them it's you know we're at twelve percent of the LEL. Yeah, you get nothing. You know they should be telling everyone to evacuate. Yeah. Um. You know, e e even if they don't, even if they think, well, that's not likely or really possible for the what we have spilled, unless we've spilled something other than what you told me. <laughs> right. And that should be a clue to the safety officer. Something's going on that that they haven't identified. Right. 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 You know, it or never, it isn't. It, no. I haven't had it. Anyway, it, that, it's experience. That's the kind of thing a safety officer should be drilling on is, um, you know, instead of just doing these big drills and here I am wearing the vest or whatever, it should be drilling on, hey, I'm getting these readings. What what do they mean? Yeah. 
Why do you what have twenty? Do? Why do you have twenty point one percent oxygen instead of twenty point nine? Sure, it's not under the nineteen point five that OSHA says is unsafe for confined space entry, but but what is present that's <laughs> caused that oxygen to be displaced? Yeah, you and know? you should you better know the answer, or you don't have any business, you know, sending people in. All right, but so often the answer is, well, it's not nineteen point five. We're okay. So yeah. if, if, if there's even that much knowledge. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, this has been a lot of fun, Amy. Yeah. It brings up some good points, doesn't it? It and, does. Um, you know, as we get to a model competent response where everything clicks along and everybody's, you know, helping each other succeed. Um, this is key, I think. Well, Amy does from iWorkWise. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Dan. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you for joining us for this episode of the Tactics Meeting. If you enjoyed the show, please help us spread the word. I ask this every week, so I'll ask again. Please send an email, recommend us to a friend. We would really like to reach as many people as possible. I hope to see you at Clean Pacific, August 17th and 18th in Renton, Washington. And until then, stay safe.